Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. School of Humans. So remember back in episode one, at the beginning of this series, I talked about driving to Mount Meg's last July, about trying to get in the front gate more than 50 years after Jenny, Johnny, Lonnie, Mary, Johnny Mac, and Jesse James Andrews had left. This was always a project about Mount Meg's back then, rather than now. But the more I looked into the institution's history, the more I wanted to know what it was like today. Had it improved? Or had the lawsuit been a false positive? A promise that never manifested? For more than a year, we tried over and over to get access to Mount Meg's. Not only for reporting purposes, but because Johnny, Mary, Jenny, and Lonnie all expressed interest in seeing what it was like now. We called, emailed, asked anyone who we thought might be able to get us in. But they denied us, giving us various excuses. They were understaffed. There were COVID restrictions. It was too close to the holidays. They even turned down Denny, a former law enforcement officer. We really don't ever give tours to begin with, a staff person at the Department of Youth Services wrote. Instead, she just sent us some newsletters and a YouTube link to a video, writing that maybe these would, as she said, provide them some hope that things have changed and continue to change for the better. So instead, I just decided to show up to see as much of the place as I could. Hi. Sorry. I've been working on a project about the Mount Megs in the 60s, and I was just hoping I could see the campus. Is there a way we could just drive around it? No, no. Since this series started airing, we've finally gotten a more positive response to our request to visit from the administrators at Mount Meg's. In mid-February, an official from the Alabama Department of Youth Services responded to an email sent from a member of Lonnie's team. The official said they were open to discussing a visit from former residents in the near future, but added that they would like to listen to the entire series before scheduling a specific time. In this episode, the last of the series, 
We look at where Lonnie, Mary, Johnny, Jenny, and Denny are 50 years after leaving Mount Meg's. We also look at how juvenile justice in America has evolved and how other juvenile reform schools that mistreated their students have atoned for their wrongs. And lastly, we get a glimpse into the current state of Mount Meg's. Has it changed? Or is it the same place it was more than 50 years ago? The feedback that I get from my clients while at Mount Meg's is, I think, exactly what one would expect it to be. The worst case scenario would be death, and Mount Meg's would be immediately under that. I'm Josie Duffy Rice. This is Unreformed, the story of the Alabama Industrial School for Negro Children. Episode 8, Searching for Justice. Over the past year, I've thought more and more about what justice would look like here. What would justice look like for Lonnie, Mary, Jenny, and Johnny? What would it look like for all the students of Mount Meg's, including the ones there today? What would it look like for Jesse James Andrews or Johnny Mac Young or the people that they hurt? Is justice even possible? One of the things that blew my mind is the fact that none of the survivors we spoke to even knew about the 1969 lawsuit until decades later. They'd been victimized by this institution, but once they were gone, they were gone. There was no follow-up, no accounting, no remorse from the state of Alabama. And it goes without saying that they didn't get any relief. They didn't get settlement money or anything. They didn't even get an apology. They all left Mount Meg's and were tossed out to fend for themselves. And they're still paying for it, half a century later. In 2012, Mary was at her home in Chattanooga, sitting across from an investigator from Tennessee's Child Protective Services. Her own children had grown up, and she wanted to become a foster parent. She was nervous because there was something standing in her way. Her criminal record specifically the year and a half she had spent at Mount Meg's. It turned out that it was not going to be an issue. Instead, this meeting connected Mary with someone she hadn't seen since she was a child. The investigator for uh, Department of Children's Services did my investigation to be in the foster parenting system. And I told her about my stay at Alabama Industrial School. She said, you know, there's a book out about that school. I said, what? That book was They Had No Voice by whistleblower Denny Abbott and his co-author, Douglas Collegian. I hadn't forgotten about Denny, you know. At the end of the meeting at Mary's, the investigator gave her Denny's name and phone number. And soon as she left, I called Denny. That call in 2012 was the first time Mary had talked to Denny since she and other runaways from Mount Meg's pleaded for his help at the Montgomery Juvenile Detention Center 45 years prior. After I got fired, after we filed the suits, it took me almost a year to find meaningful employment. And then 
At the end of that year, we had to borrow money against our life insurance policy to pay our bills. Uh, I got a call from uh, O.J. Keller, who was setting up a division of youth services that had already done it in the state of Florida. And uh, he called me and he said, we have an opening. Would you like to be the regional detention director for South Florida? And I said, uh, absolutely, I'll be there tomorrow. They finally saw each other for the first time in decades when Denny gave a talk about his book at the Rosa Parks Library in Montgomery. Their reunion was caught briefly on video. Mary is with a group of women, also survivors of Mount Meg's. Denny hugs each of them, but you can tell he shares a special connection with Mary. A lot of tears and... I thanked him for helping me and for me getting out of being able to leave without being killed. He's more than a friend. I look up to him as a father figure also because of his care and the way he felt about children. Mary Stevens was always looking for a family. She grew up in an unstable household, and when she first arrived at Mount Meg's, she hoped that Fanny Matthews was going to adopt her. But in some ways, that feeling of family safety always eluded her. After she was released from Mount Meg's, she was plagued by instability once again. When I left... Alabama sent me right back to the same foster home, first place I got raped. My brothers and sisters were there. I left the foster home, got married, had a baby at 19. But while she tried to build the family she always wanted, her brothers and sisters were left behind. I know they were being beat with a razor strap. And so Mary did something bold, risky. I stole my brothers and sisters from that foster home. It was a crazy idea, one that, if things went wrong, could have resulted in her child being taken from her. But Mary did it anyway. I told my brother when I was coming, and for them to be ready. One brother and two sisters. I was scared. <laughs> I was so scared. I was scared the police was going to be behind me. I had my brother looking out. <laughs> we were speeding. We probably would have gotten stopped for speeding faster than we would have got stopped for stolen children. <laughs> Mary and her siblings made it across the state line to Tennessee. By that time, Mary had already left her husband. So she was a young, single mother trying to take care of her child and her siblings. She struggled to make ends meet. When I got them to Tennessee, I couldn't take care of them. I was making $1.60 an hour working at the police department as a dispatch. I had a child, and I couldn't get any help from my brothers and sisters, so they ended up going to TPS, Tennessee Preparatory School. But it was nothing like not me. For Mary, her life as an adult wasn't always easy. 
but it was better than her childhood. She remarried, had more children, divorced again. She built a career as an insurance agent. But in recent years, Mary was called to something else, foster parenting. I think Mount Megs had a lot to do with that. <laughs> After I divorced, I knew that I wanted to do something good, so I started a foster home. When they came into my house, they were calling me Miss Mary. I told them, you can call me whatever you want. You don't have to call me Miss Mary. And I explained to them how much I loved them and cared for them, and, you know, they chose Nana. Mary showed us a property behind her house. She used to own three lots, but ended up selling them off. Actually, I wanted to start a school. That's why I had these three lots. I wanted a school, but I got sick. And I got to have back surgery again, so... I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis in 1988. I came home in 70. So I've been dealing with this since 1988. And worse, you know, fibromyalgia, degenerative discs, deteriorating and stuff. We found that this is true for a lot of survivors of Mount Megs. There are permanent injuries that started young, often in the back. And I still have this disability in my back where I can't sit very long or stand very long. Here's Jenny Knox. From the outside, Jenny appears to have a sense of serenity with her family photos and the Bible collection at her Montgomery home. But the years following her release from Mount Meg's were rough. I came home and I've been stuck ever since. From the time I left my Meg's until... My adulthood, just feeling stagnated, mentally stagnated. After Mount Meg's, Jenny moved to Atlanta, where she worked as a nanny. She found herself in and out of tumultuous relationships, and eventually she moved back to Montgomery. I think I came out with lots of anger in me, lots of hurt. I was troubled. I was confused. I didn't know who to trust. I just hung out by myself a lot of times because I didn't think nobody would really care or would really understand what I had gone through or or maybe I didn't understand, you know, life itself. Having most of my teenage years taken away from me and I think it was when I gave my life to Christ in 83 when I really felt like releasing. I got to steal away. Jenny got saved in 1983 and ordained in 1993. And ever since then, she's been intimately involved with her church. It was her pastor and his wife who were the first people she was able to open up to about Mount Meg's. I sat down and talked to my pastor's wife first. And then that encouraged me to just go forward and talk about it. Both Jenny and Mary said they haven't talked about what they went through at Mount Meg's with many people, even family. Ms. Matthews had already told us that no matter who we talked to, they wasn't going to believe us in the, you know, from the start. And so I guess it has settled in my mind, you know, what's the use of trying to tell anybody anything about it? And then... 
Uh, I didn't think my family would really understand. So I just kept it held in. Mary said something similar. I've tried to talk to my daughter about it. She thinks it's because I stayed out of school. I just didn't want to go to school. It was the reason I had to go away. But it wasn't. I've tried to explain to her the childhood that we had. and This is something that you don't talk about a lot. Because people think you did something. You don't want to go. No. They buried my childhood life under a cotton roll. That's Johnny Bodley singing. In the 1980s, Johnny started working with kids at a secure treatment facility for juvenile delinquents in Boston. Gazing for rape, murder, robbery, teenagers, 15, 16 years old. And one of the good things about that situation is whenever I start talking, they will listen. Because I start talking about Mountain Meigs, start talking about when I was locked up and the things that I did, and they say, and you a counselor? I said, yeah. I said, you could change. But Johnny wasn't exactly on the street and narrow yet. When he moved to Boston in the 1970s, he was part-time musician, part-time self-described hustler, prone to petty theft, robbery here and there. He was teaching the kids he worked with to be better, but wasn't necessarily following his own advice. And then I would go back and be with these young guys. So my conscience started bothering me. I mean, how could I be trying to change these guys and I'm still out here? This is what I'm saying to myself. And I did that for about 15 years, working with these guys. You know, so eventually I just just ended up changing. And that's the best thing that ever happened to me in my life, you know. For the other Johnny, Johnny Mac Young, he's serving life without parole as we speak. For years, he had a plan. So I had made a commitment to myself that when I got this life without parole, when I get tired of doing the time, I'm just going to make the authorities kill me. He'd commit suicide by cop by doing something that would force the prison guards to kill him. That led to a standoff with guards while at Holman, one of the most infamously brutal prisons in the country. But Johnny Mack survived the standoff, and he started corresponding with a prison advocacy volunteer via mail. He was shocked that someone would want to help him. And I realized I didn't want to be that person that you speak. And the first thing that I had to resolve was, why was I the person that I was? And it was all because of the treatment and the things that I was taught in my own marriage. So he started taking college courses offered in prison. First psychology, then writing. He's a poet and an essayist. He has a bachelor's degree in theology. He and some other incarcerated men produced a radio show. He also works as a jailhouse lawyer, helping other inmates file appeals. But for Johnny Mack, the biggest change happened when the Alabama Department of Corrections started offering meditation courses. I participated in like about 23 10-day courses. And we learned how to, you know, concentrate the mind, 
and just observe sensation. Once I educated myself and, and, and just learned and then got compassionate, see, like I almost was crying a little while when I was talking to you. I'm not affected by what happened back then, but just expressing it, saying it, you know, just telling somebody about it. It's enough to bring tears to my eyes, right? Johnny Mack has been in prison for 36 years. He's 73 now. He's currently building a case in hopes of being furloughed under Alabama law. He says he meets two of the requirements. He's a geriatric inmate, and he's permanently incapacitated. He has back pain so debilitating that sometimes it's hard for him to move at all. But because he's in prison, Johnny Mack still has not received treatment. He's in his 70s now, though, and prison does a number on a person's life expectancy. 73 in prison is very different than 73 outside. His health and survival is a race against the clock. The wait is over. The shy is back on Paramount Plus, and the stakes have never been higher. Everything changes on the South Side when a new threat comes to power in the Showtime original series from Emmy winner Lena Waithe. Battle lines will be drawn, alliances will shift, and danger lies around every corner, leaving everyone to wonder who they can trust. Visit ParamountPlus.com slash TheShot to get a 50% discount off the Paramount Plus with Showtime annual plan. Offer ends July 14th. Subscription auto-renews. Restrictions apply. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Remember how we started this series? Lonnie Holly was out late at night, exploring the streets of Birmingham, finding interesting things among the trash. He'd been separated from his parents and his dozens of siblings as a baby. And by the time he got to Mount Meg's, he'd been given a different name entirely. But unlike so many other kids who got taken from their families, Lonnie actually found his by sheer coincidence during a conversation he was having one day with another student at Mount Meg's. I was telling him about how I had been trying to get to the airport out to the Hollies. And he asked me, what about the Hollies? Uh, He said he knows some Hollies up the hill from where they were. Word got back to Lonnie's grandmother that the baby they'd been looking for all of this time the one taken by a burlesque dancer more than a dozen years before, was locked up just a couple of hours away. 
My grandmother, when she found out that I was there, she came to visit me on that Sunday. So when she presented the birth certificate and everything that I was learning, Bradley Harley, they released me into her custody. And I came home with her. It was 1964 when Lonnie was finally released from Mount Megs. He was 14 years old. Lonnie was glad to be reunited with his family. But the trauma and abuse he experienced at Mount Megs stayed with him as he reacclimated to life outside. Trying to fit back into the social system, it was almost impossible. His grandmother tried to enroll him back in school, but... I wasn't with that. I'm a suspect in America. I'm a suspect for some mentality. At age 15, Lonnie followed one of his brothers to Florida and did whatever work he could pick up. He later became a cook at Disney World when it opened near Orlando in 1971. He's had a few scrapes with the law, spent a couple nights in jail, but nothing else. Since the late 1970s, Lonnie's life has been dedicated to his art. He's an extremely successful visual artist and even has a cult following as a musician. But despite his eventful life, traveling the world as an artist and a musician, those formative years at Mount Megs are embedded in his head and in his body. Here's a clip from a sound check in the UK when Lonnie busted out something he learned as a kid that he called the Mount Meg Stomp, the rhythm track for this podcast theme song. Lonnie is the only one who has been able to get back inside Mount Meg's. He went in 2013 with a camera crew. During the visit, he clutched onto the arm of a close family friend, terrified. I get the heebie-jeebies now on him. Okay, get your camera ready, because see, they ain't gonna, this, is, this is the way they brought us in. Unlike us, Lonnie was allowed to tour the facility. He saw the old building that E.B. Holloway used to live in, the white dormitory where the girls lived. The next year, he went back again, and this time just stood outside the gate, reflecting on his time there, especially on the rock pile. It was just so horrible that I couldn't get it out of my memory. It was almost like you having to uh, go through shell shop like you've been in the military, and it's just constantly going through your brain, and this is something that you just can't forget about. Lonnie's art is one way of working through the trauma he endured there. I talked to him about his sculpture, Blood on the Rock Pile, and some of his other pieces that refer directly to Mount Meg's. In one piece, he padlocked together eight spoons. It's called Chain Gang, Mount Meg's. Another, called Whitewash, features seven broken mops. The mop heads are dirty like how the kids in white would have looked after spending days or months on the rock pile. That's the reason why I like doing abstract, because abstract can allow me to put my hand back in 
situation and then I can redo it. Here is something here. I don't know whether I can peel this away. With the camera rolling, Lonnie peeled away a small piece of paint from the fence surrounding the grounds. So just that little piece right there is enough to remind me that I had been here today. So Lonnie, always fascinated by found objects that others would discard, took that small piece of Mount Meg's with him, a fragment of a part of his life that he couldn't erase. We could have told you the simple story, the easy one, that the 1969 lawsuit changed everything, that after Judge Frank Johnson ruled against the state of Alabama, Mount Meg's magically transformed into a caring home for children, a true place of rehabilitation. This is a story Mount Meg's likes to tell, too. In their January newsletter, the department said they welcome some new ideas on how best to rehabilitate youth. They mentioned that they prioritize communication and collaboration, writing, We share ideas freely and courageously. We embrace the potential of new ideas and approaches. But the truth, as far as I can tell, is more complicated. Since the lawsuit, Mount Meg seems to have gotten better. But it never got good. Some parts did improve, at least at first. It was less crowded than it had been. Kids had shoes to wear. But plenty of things stayed the same. In the past 50 years, countless children have run away, just as they used to, sometimes in packs of three or seven or even 11. The state would once again use dogs to sniff them out. And if and when they were caught, they'd be arrested and sent to adult jail. And over the past 50 years, the overcrowding and poor infrastructure have made the news again every so often, as state authorities once again claim they're helpless to address the problems. And Mount Meg's tradition of poor record-keeping didn't end in 1971 either. For example, in 1997, a board member noticed that the school had somehow lost ownership of 700 acres of land since the early 1980s, and no one knew how. The school blamed the lack of paper trail on a 1976 fire that destroyed the institution's administrative records. But the board member noted that the missing land had happened after the fire. He suspected that the land had been traded for political favors. And there have still been credible allegations of abuse perpetrated by staff and other students. Some of those allegations are in letters from parents or whispered among practitioners. Others can be found in lawsuits or newspaper articles. In 2011, for example, a student filed suit against a school officer, alleging he shoved him into the wall and slammed his face into a table. The court noted the injuries, bleeding, bruises, cracked teeth, a swollen head. The feedback that I get from my clients while at Mount Meg's is, I think, exactly what one would expect it to be. The worst case scenario would be death, and Mount Meg's would be immediately under that. That's Jennifer Schnipper, a lawyer who's practiced family law in Birmingham, Alabama, for almost 15 years. Relatively early in Jennifer's career, she had a young client facing time at Mount Meg's. 
the judge was very clear in saying, have you ever been to Mount Meg's? And I said, no. And he said, you should go. So Jennifer arranged to visit the facility, and immediately she understood what the judge meant. It's stark, it's cold, it's depressing, it's, it's intimidating. And these, I knew, were kids anywhere from 12 to 19, 20, 21 years old that could be in there for three months, six months, three years. It was shocking. That visit to Mount Meg's has shaped Jennifer's decisions as someone who represents children in court. I fight to keep my clients out of Mount Meg's because, from my perspective, there is very little value in a commitment to Mount Meg's. I don't find that it particularly benefits my clients, and I often feel like it becomes a bigger detriment to my clients. Over the past couple decades, the consensus around juvenile justice in America has shifted. In 2005, the Supreme Court ruled that sentencing juveniles to death was unconstitutional. And in 2012, the court also outlawed mandatory life-without-parole sentences for children. We know more about children now, more about their brain development, their decision-making, the impulses that lead them to act out. And in some ways, that knowledge is changing how the juvenile justice system works, even in places like Alabama. The juvenile justice system tends to have changed perspective significantly. We look at the child as a whole. In other words, they're more likely to try other ways of addressing the issues that children face. Meaning that sending kids to places like Mount Meg's... Has steadily decreased, and it continues to decrease. I think commitments account for a very low number of outcomes for these delinquency cases. There are so many resources in place that can help us keep that from happening. There's one more thing about Mount Meg's that hasn't changed, and that's the suffering in silence. There's not much more interest in what's happening there now than there was 50 years ago. Some other institutions have seen backlash related to their mistreatment of children. But there's been no reckoning at Mount Meg's. The wait is over. The shy is back on Paramount Plus, and the stakes have never been higher. Everything changes on the South Side when a new threat comes to power in the Showtime original series from Emmy winner Lena Waithe. Battle lines will be drawn, alliances will shift, and danger lies around every corner, leaving everyone to wonder who they can trust. Visit ParamountPlus.com slash shot to get a 50% discount off the Paramount Plus with Showtime annual plan. Offer ends July 14th. Subscription auto-renews. Restrictions apply. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. 
Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. We mentioned at the beginning of this podcast that Mount Meigs wasn't the only school that abused children. At the Dozier School in Florida, once known as the Florida State Reform School, children were abused for decades. In 2012, a team of forensic anthropologists did fieldwork on the property and uncovered dozens of unmarked graves. At least 100 children were thought to have died there. There's a major difference between what the Dozier School was like in the 1950s and 60s and Mount Meg's. Both Black and white students attended the Dozier School, which was internally segregated. But aside from that, there are a lot of similarities between the two institutions. And the stories told by the survivors of the Dozier School echo the stories of those who survived Mount Meg's. And in Canada, over 150,000 Indigenous children were forcibly separated from their families and sent to what were called residential schools, many of which were run by the Catholic Church. Thousands of children at over 100 schools suffered physical, emotional, and sexual abuse. In 2021, experts uncovered over 600 bodies of children who died at just one school. These aren't the only other institutions where abusing children was systemic, normal, encouraged. But I've thought a lot about these two specifically, not because of what happened at the schools, but what happened after. For survivors of both of these institutions, there's been a call for justice, a demand for accountability for the pain those children endured. And in both Florida and Canada, that call was at least sort of answered. In 2017, the Florida legislature officially apologized to the survivors of the Dozier School. I cannot uh, say with enough heartfelt remorse that it's taken this long for a legislature with all the evidence that is before us to come forth and apologize for what has to be one of the blackest moments on our state's history. And in the summer of 2022, the Pope traveled to Canada to apologize publicly for the abuse that indigenous children suffered. Para que los sufrimientos del pasado dejen el lugar a un futuro de justicia, de sanación y de reconciliación. So I wondered, did that feel like justice for those survivors? To hear the abuse acknowledged, to hear some remorse. For some, the answer is yes. Here's Peta Ernick, a survivor of the Kamloops Indian Residential School, speaking to CBC Television. The Pope's apology to me uh, will allow its survivors um, to uh, begin a new chapter. But for others, it's not enough. And for some, it's not anything. We talked to some of their survivors of the Dozier School about what the state's apology in 2017 meant to them. Here's Charlie Fudge. It, it's time that, that they make something more right than just an apology. And Captain Bryant Middleton. 
it was an empty gesture without meaning, with no follow-up. And Richard Huntley. Let me be honest with you. And I think that's hogwash. I mean, I think that's for, 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 you know what I mean, that's full of shit. After all, these apologies don't come with anything. Apologies demand no sacrifice from the state. No reparations, no settlements, no monetary damages for the personal damage done to them. The governor basically said they didn't have money to compensate us, compensate us in the sense of ensuring that those that had been abused were were treated by doctors if need be. Most of us old guys have a very low income and... uh... The majority of of boys that was taken there and beaten actually ended up in prison. There's been bills for reparations. Money wouldn't fix what they went through. Nothing would. But at least it would be something. As boys, these men were abused, tortured, their futures crippled by what they endured. What good are words now? And yet... Words are more than most have gotten. How many stories like this one have gone uncovered? How many children have gone missing or died without their families knowing what happened to them? How much abuse has been unleashed on kids like the ones at these schools without anyone saying anything? Here's one of the Dozier survivors, Captain Bryant Middleton again. I can't help but wonder if any of this would surface anywhere else had it not been so prominently covered uh, by the media here in Florida. How many other places are are like Dozier, the Florida School for Boys, that have not been found out or have not been reported? There's no telling. Alabama has never expressed any regret for what the state did to those children. In fact, the terror of Mount Meigs has gotten little attention at all before now, except for Denny's book and Jesse James Andrews' appeal in California court. I have some theories of why that might be. At the Dozier School and the residential schools in Canada, survivors connected and organized. We decided we would have some sort of reunion. We were startled by the amount of of turnout that we had, literally hundreds of, of men showed up. It just was overwhelming. You can probably imagine how much the connection matters, how the fight for acknowledgement is much easier when hundreds of people speak out versus just one. Regardless of the outcome, being part of a group is some sort of relief, catharsis. But survivors of Mount Megs haven't been organized like that quite yet. And so many of them suffer alone. They don't have anyone to validate their memories, their trauma, what they went through as children. There are other differences between Mount Meg's and some of these other facilities. For example, at the Dozier School, many of the survivors were white, which probably increased the likelihood of accountability. Plus, the other institutions have been shut down. The Dozier School shuttered in 2011 and the Canadian residential schools have been closed since the early 1990s. At Mount Meg's, though, the institution lives on. We don't know what became of the makeshift graveyard that Johnny Bodley and Lonnie Hawley remember. But since this podcast began airing, 
we've gotten emails from people formerly affiliated with Mount Megs, including one from someone who worked there within the last few years. He says Lonnie and Johnny's memories are correct, that the small graveyard still existed when he worked there. With me, Other places have brought in forensic anthropologists to unearth these institutions' secrets. But as long as Mount Meggs is open, that level of reckoning is impossible. How can Alabama fully apologize or account for the harm of an institution that still exists? E.B. Holloway died in 1976. Judge Thetford died in 1977. Most of the adult perpetrators are dead now, and lots of the children who were there in the 1960s are dead too. But some remain, like Lonnie, Mary, Jenny, and Johnny. Don't leave me alone, Lord. Don't leave me alone. Why I'm on this teaser journey, I want Jesus to walk with me. So, this is the end of our story. But ours is only part of the story of Mount Megs. The entire story of this place now almost 115 years old, is limitless. There's no way to account for all the harm caused by Mount Megs to survivors and all the harm caused by survivors because of that trauma. I find myself wishing I had a clearer ending to give you, that I could say the survivors are completely at peace now, that I could tell you there had been some sort of reckoning with those who perpetrated these injustices. Denny now in his 80s, is still trying to find a way to get reparations for the survivors of Mount Megs. But that's not a promise that he or we can make. The true story, as always, is a little more unsatisfying than the stories we want to tell. Earlier, I asked what justice for these survivors would look like. But maybe the truth is that justice here is impossible. There's no way of making whole what was broken on that stretch of land outside of Montgomery. The harm cannot be undone. We asked, if you could talk to the people who abused you, what would you say? And Mary thought about Fanny Matthews. And all of these years later, she found herself wondering what Fanny had gone through, what kind of pain she might have experienced herself to do what she did to Mary and so many others. What happened to her to make her so treacherous? You know, I'm a softie too. As bad as it was, and I haven't, so I'm not going to lie to you and say I've forgiven her, okay? If she told me what happened to her, I probably have a soft spot for her too. If I knew something happened, but some, I don't know. I don't know. I'd probably end up loving her too. (laughs) So maybe there's something else, a bit of comfort, maybe, 
or even hope in the fact that, despite it all, many survivors still have the capacity for forgiveness. Despite it all, so many of them are still trying to make the world a little better. And 50 years later, they're still here, still suffering, still remembering, but still surviving all the same. Unreformed, the story of the Alabama Industrial School for Negro Children is a production of School of Humans and iHeartMedia. This episode was written by me, Josie Duffy Rice, and Taylor Von Lasley. Our script supervisor is Florence Burrow Adams, and our producer is Gabby Watts. We had additional writing and production support from Sherry Scott. Executive producers are Virginia Prescott, Elsie Crowley, Brandon Barr, Matt Arnett, and me. Sound design and mix is by Jesse Nyswanger. Music is by Ben Soley. Additional recordings are courtesy of the Alabama Center for Traditional Culture. The songs featured in this episode are Steal Away by Spiritual Voices of Whitehall, Alabama, Walk With Me by Helen McLeod, and I'm a Suspect by Lonnie Holly, courtesy of Jag Jaguar. Special thanks to the Alabama Department of Archives and History, Michael Harriet, Floyd Hall, Kevin Nutt, Van Newkirk, and all of the survivors of Mount Meg's willing to share their stories. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. If you or someone you know attended Mount Meg's and would like to be in contact, please email mountmegspodcast at gmail.com. That's M-T-M-E-I-G-S podcast at gmail.com. School of Humans. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.